Hello stargazers, thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Mad Miller. And I'm Dara. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky over the month of February in our Cosmic Diary. So, when you're looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it's really important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve night vision. Allow your eyes 15 minutes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. And if you are using a star app on your phone, then do remember to switch on the red night vision mode. And if you're new to astronomy or have just bought binoculars or a telescope, we suggest that you start with the moon. On the 5th of February, you'll see a first quarter moon from about midday until midnight. Do look towards the terminator, which is the bit between the bright and dark sides, to see the craters. Long shadows by the crater walls provide better contrast. And then on the 11th, you can catch the full moon. It will be located on the opposite side of the Earth to the sun, and it will be above the horizon from 6pm till about 8am the following day. Watch it rise in the evening. It will appear very big in the sky due to something called moon illusion. And it's also redder when it's low in the sky because of atmospheric effects. It will cross the meridian, its highest point, just after midnight. Then later that night, there will be the penumbral lunar eclipse starting at around half ten and reaching a maximum at around 12.45 the following morning. The moon will pass through the Earth's partial shadow, or penumbra, where it will darken slightly. Then on the 19th, look for the last quarter moon. Another fantastic opportunity to see the craters and take some photos. And the best time to look for fainter objects in the night sky will be during a new moon phase on the 26th. The moon here will be on the same side of the Earth as the sun, and we will see the dark side, so it won't be visible in the night sky. And if the moon isn't up, well, the sky will be a lot darker, and this is a great time to look at the Orion Nebula and also our nearest big galaxy, Andromeda. And finally, an hour or so after sunset, on the 27th, look for the planetary conjunction of Mars next to Uranus. You'll need to use a small telescope to see the blue gas giant. And close by to the west, you'll also see Venus. Through a telescope, you will see it in its crescent phase. Venus is super bright at the moment due to it being close to the Earth. And if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to ROG Astronomers. And now for our cosmic news. Welcome to our Cosmic News podcast. Um, so, we have two extremely exciting news stories for you today. There are there have been lots of discoveries in the field of astronomy and space science, and both me and Dara have picked our favourites. And it's up to you guys to decide which one you like the most. And um, if you do want to comment on any of our news stories, do tweet us. Our Twitter address is at ROG Astronomers. If you had that hashtag ROG Schools, we'd love to chat to you. So Dara, go on, tell us what's going on. Okay, headline for this month. An explosion that will change the night sky in 2022. So not long and we will have something that we can actually hopefully see in our sky as a bit of an explosion, so a bright kind of source of light. We're not talking asteroid explosion, no, we're not no. talking about an asteroid. Okay. So this is thought to be um, a binary star that will merge and explode in 2022, give or take a year or so. Okay. Um, so a binary star being two stars that are kind of orbiting around each other, mm-hmm. uh, and these stars are actually getting closer and closer to each other, and they're due to merge and explode in the next several years. Now this is actually um, 
a really, really interesting thing because never before has a prediction of an explosion been done. No, it's I've never heard of one. Really actually. difficult. We, yeah. you know, if you're not looking at the right part of the sky, a supernova goes off, and it's hey, we've missed it, but we can see the supernova remnant. Um, so I asked myself, how do they know? How do they? How do they know this is going to happen? Mm. I mean, it's because they found this binary system and they've been studying it and they've been seeing that it's getting closer and closer together. And over the 15 years of data they've collected, they've been able to work out uh, when it's due to kind of merge and explode. And um, so that's how they've been able to predict this explosion. Wow. Um, Have they got a date and a time? I mean, what, Monday, the 17th of February, <laughs> 2022? <laughs> Precisely 6 I have PM. a meeting that day. No. <laughs> this is why they've kind of given that kind of give or take a year. It's a, mm. it's a prediction, um, but hopefully it will be around that time. Um, so this science was actually led by a man called Larry Molnar, and he's a professor at Calvin College in Michigan. And he was also collaborating with his students and also other colleagues, some at the Apache Point Observatory in the Sacramento Mountains in New Mexico. Brilliant. Lovely, yep, uh, and also some of the colleagues from the University of Wyoming in the United States. Uh, so this binary system, two stars, they're jointly named as here we go, KIC nine eight three two 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 seven. Brilliant name, but they are they're a multiple system. And in fact, Rad, did you know that almost as many as eighty five percent of the stars we see in our sky are thought to be multiple star systems? Jade, so that means our sun is unusual, right? The fact that it doesn't have a twin. That's True. pretty cool. The other nice thing about it is that we can actually see some of these binary stars in our sky. So with our eyes, we look and we see single points of light. Uh, but if you've ever spotted the Big Dipper, uh, one of the stars is actually a binary star. And all you need is a pair of binoculars to be able to see it. Uh, and then if you can spot the uh, constellation of Cygnus, there's a beautiful binary star there called Alberio. I've seen it through a telescope myself and it looks absolutely amazing. And of course, the amazing. two stars are different colours, aren't yeah. they? So one blue, one orange. So uh, yeah, they're really beautiful objects to look at. Wow. So but this binary is going to explode. This one's going to explode. So Molnar's researcher student, his name was Daniel Van Nord, and he looked at how the colour of the stars kind of colorates with its brightness, uh, and he found that this was what we call a contact binary. Uh, this is where the stars are so close together that they kind of share a common atmosphere. Mm -hmm. um, so I like to think of it as kind of... Um, you know, you get those monkey nuts and you've got the two nuts and then you've got a shell that kind of goes around both oh, of them. Yeah, I get a it, little yeah. bit like that, like a yeah. common atmosphere that they yeah. uh, share. And it's also an eclipsing binary, which is brilliant for us. And it means that as the two stars orbit each other, they're kind of orbiting and coming in front of each other from our point of view. So they're blocking out each other's light and we can measure the changes in brightness. So that helps us kind of determine what they're doing, how quickly they're orbiting each other uh, and when this explosion is going to kind of happen. So they also used data from the Kepler satellite, and they found that these stars are orbiting each other every 11 hours, so extremely quickly. And the most impressive thing is that they found that it's actually a little less than what they'd earlier observed. So this is getting to the idea that these binary stars are actually orbiting each other faster and faster, which means they must be getting closer and closer. Wow, so they are losing, because of their mutual gravitational pull, they're losing orbital energy. Exactly. And that's where they're spiraling into each other. That's just so exciting. So another thing that popped into my head is just how do we know that these are binary stars? We know that there are stars that pulse out there, their brightness changes. So how do we know that the changes in brightness we're seeing now aren't from pulsing stars? How do we know they're from binary stars? And it's due to this kind of color change. Both of these types of stars, so binary stars and variable stars, they'll, their brightness will change. Mm -hmm. uh, pulsing stars kind of get smaller and bigger, they shrink and they expand, and their brightness changes as a result of that. But the colours of variable stars may change. So as they shrink, right. uh, their temperature will increase and the 
temperature of a star ah. determines its colour. So course. you'd see a colour change. But with binary stars, you don't see that. You just see a dip in the brightness or a gain in the brightness as we see both of those stars or just one of them blocking out the light. So I thought that was quite an interesting, yeah. how does science work? Absolutely. Um, you yeah, know, we know that these things exist because of using quite nice, simple science like that. Um, so 15 years of data collection uh, and they also had the support of another star that they had been looking at so a star called V1309 Scorpii uh, it kind of did the same thing so it exploded in what we call a red nova a new type of um, kind of distinct explosion and when they looked through the archives of the data of this star they found that it was pretty similar to what they were seeing with this one it was a contact binary uh, and its orbital period was decreasing over a certain amount of time right. until eventually uh, an explosion was seen and um, so they have evidence to suggest that this is the same type of thing and when these stars actually merge they predict it will be 10,000 times brighter for a temporary part uh, making it one of the brightest stars in our sky uh, so right now we don't actually see them in our sky they're not bright enough 10,000 times brighter they'll become as they explode for a short amount of time and so we'll have a new star in the constellation of Cygnus for a little bit that we can actually see and could we see it with our naked eye yep so it'll be very very bright we'll be able to see it with our eye and it will make up one of the the kind of wings of Cygnus so it'll extend one of the wings of that constellation so that's really really nice um, and the future well if we study uh, the explosion now and it happens well we'll know how it came to happen so I think this is one of the nicest things that we've caught this binary system in the kind of uh, run-up to when it's going to explode thinking about it like a like a bit of a car crash you turn up to a car crash and you see the wreck but you don't actually know how those cars came to be in that wreck you just yeah. see that wreck like an explosion but here we're watching the cars before they've actually kind of collided and wrecked yeah. into each other so we're getting an idea of how the explosion came to happen and then we can see it when it finally does so I think that's a really nice thing to be able to do especially in astronomy where things are so far away uh, and mm. we can't touch them they're not tangible and the fact that it's happening uh, well within our lifetime as well you know so many astronomical events like take so many years to happen that you know you just don't you kind of lose track of it all but the fact that this is kind of being observed in real time um, and then in the next five years Will eventually happen. they will collide that's incredibly exciting and it's looking at this binary system now like the next couple of years is looking at it with all types of wavelengths so we detect visible light with our eyes but there are other forms of light uh, so there's oh. things like infrared radiation we can detect there's things like x-rays so they'll be using telescopes from all over the world for the next few years like the very large array uh, telescope in Socorro in New Mexico that measures wavelengths of radio waves so the very long wavelengths low energy mm -hmm. they'll be looking using the infrared telescope facility uh, that's NASA's three meter telescope uh, in Hawaii looking at infrared light from these binary stars and they'll also be using the XMM Newton spacecraft that's ESA's x-ray observatory uh, so they'll be looking at you know the highest energy waves that are coming from these and just like you kind of hit the nail on the head I think this is a story that can bring and draw everybody in this is something mm. that people can see with their eyes yes. and it's in our lifetime and it's great because even amateur astronomers could actually point their telescopes up towards this binary system now and they can count down with the astronomers they can look and see how the orbital period is getting less and less and eventually hopefully we're going to see this explosion in our sky that changes us uh, in 2022 oh you've inspired me Dara that's amazing I feel Emotional. <laughs> I can't wait now till 2022. <laughs> well, 2022 is not far along, but hey, Rad, what's your uh, new story for this right, month? All right, well, aliens, Dara, aliens on Mars. That's my story, 
right? I know. I, I, I give you that. You've got crashing stars. I've got aliens on Mars. Is this true aliens? Are we talking about aliens with uh, three yeah, arms? We're, and... not, we're not talking Independence Day with Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones aliens. We're talking microbes, right? Uh-huh. But, you know, and, and uh, you know, people say, oh, what, microbes? But do you know what, right? Having a little read about this, I'm not a microbiologist, but microbes are essential to, to everything, really. Without microbes, we couldn't function as human beings. Okay, I'm trying to glamorise microbes here, but do you know what? They are incredibly important. And I think to to find extraterrestrial microbes would be amazing. So this is the story. Uh, this is a kind of laboratory exercise on the Earth. Okay. Okay. So there's a scientist called Rebecca Mickle. She's an astrobiologist. I felt if I'd known about astrobiology, you know, years ago when I was doing my degree, I probably would have ended up being an astrobiologist it sounds pretty cool it's quite nice when you can combine different fields of science like that yeah absolutely the fact that you don't it's not just astrophysics it's astrobiology astrochemistry all these different kinds of uh, planetary scientists planetary geologists so she works at the arkansas center for space and planetary sciences at the university of arkansas which is in america and she is quoted as saying in all the environments we find here on earth in all of these environments doesn't matter how extreme they are Um, There is some sort of microorganism in all of those extreme environments. And that's really exciting for astrobiologists because that means um, there might be worlds or moons in our solar system with similar extreme environments um, that could have life. So this is what they're trying to do. They're trying to explore the possibility of life surviving that very extreme, cold, dry, desiccated, harsh environment um, on Mars. Now, a little bit about Mars, it's a little bit smaller than the Earth. The gravity is only 40% the strength of Earth's gravity. Um, There is no oxygen in the atmosphere. The atmospheric pressure is incredibly low, about uh, 1% of the Earth's atmospheric pressure. Very little water, because the average temperature is about 60 degrees below zero. It can get a lot colder than that. It can go down to minus 100. Um, And so there's a lot of frozen water. There's a lot of frozen carbon dioxide, which is like dry ice, basically. So, you know, carbon dioxide, which is a gas on Earth, turns into solid on Mars. That's how cold it gets on Mars. And so, you know, you automatically you're thinking, well, how can life survive in such a, a hostile um, environment? Um, but what's so great about their experiment is that um, they were looking at microbes called methanogens. Okay. Okay. I know. Um, and these microbes produce methane. A little bit like uh, cattle. Humans, we produce methane. So is this through the process of respiration or similar? Um, Well, you know, it's it's not quite respiration because respiration is oxygen usage. We need oxygen to make energy, okay? But these microbes, actually, um, they uh, don't need oxygen and they don't need light to produce energy. So they're not like plants They're not like plants. These are crazy microbes, right? Because you think, oh, you need water and light for any life to exist. Not these things. No, they are life, um, but they use carbon dioxide, they use hydrogen, and they bring those two together to produce methane and water. Right. That's how they get their energy from that formula, from that um, chemical uh, reaction. So they're anaerobes. That means they don't need oxygen. And that's perfect because the Martian atmosphere has absolutely no oxygen and but loads of carbon dioxide. Um, And they just need a bit of hydrogen and then they can they can survive. Um, So this is why these um, this group decided to investigate these methanogens a little bit more to see if they could cope in that in in an equivalent 
environment similar to Mars. The other thing, I'll talk, I mentioned atmospheric pressure earlier, and that the atmospheric pressure is very, very low. Um, and the other thing is, even if there is liquid water flowing over the surface, because the atmospheric pressure is very low, um, that water can boil easily. Now, here on Earth, in our atmospheric pressure, water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. But that is not a standard boiling point of water. It de really depends on the atmospheric pressure. When you have a very low atmospheric pressure, you don't have as many air molecules. And so that means that there is room for water vapor to, to go into that, if that makes any sense. There's room for it to change from liquid into steam and then join the carbon dioxide molecules in the Martian atmosphere. So, so it boils very easily. This is why then, when we talk about mountaineering kind of expeditions, people go up to higher altitudes, there's lower pressure, yeah. and so they can boil water at a lower temperature. So I've heard stories of people boiling eggs at like 80 degrees Celsius, <laughs> and it's because of that. Absolutely. And you, they can buy like these packed foods and the cooking instructions say boil water to 70 degrees and it'll be ready, you know, um, and it's because the atmospheric pressure is a lot lower. Um, and I said it's about 1%. It can range to 1,000th of the, uh, the surface pressure of the Earth. Um, and just to, 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 talking about mountains, at the top of Mount Everest, the atmospheric pressure is one third of the Earth's surface pressure. But on Mars, it can get down to 1,000th. So that's really not very much air. Not at all. Not at all. Um, and so part of this experiment was to uh, see if these microbes could survive in very, very low pressure environments. Um, and essentially they had these test tubes. They put these methanogens inside, fed them some hydrogen, um, kept the, uh, the pressure very, very low. And uh, also uh, no oxygen. All right, so completely anaerobic conditions because actually, funnily enough, oxygen kills the microbes. Interesting. Right, so they are anaerobic, so we don't want oxygen because it messes with that, that chemical reaction that they need to, to, to produce energy. Um, and they realized that um, after doing all of that, that these microbes survived exposure from 3 to 21 days at pressures down to roughly six thousandths of the Earth's surface pressure. So that is equivalent to, to Martian Mars. atmospheric pressure. These methanogens were surviving, thriving. So what they're saying is, well, there's no reason that life couldn't exist on Mars. And of course, well, we've just said that there isn't any much water on Mars. And for life to begin, for life to evolve in the first place, there has to be liquid water for it to get going, for that DNA to, to get to going start. and form cells. Um, and billions of years ago, Mars was watery. It was warmer. There were lakes. There were rivers. It sounded lovely, um, like a beautiful hotel resort. And then over time, uh, it became geologically dead and things migrated in the solar system and it just became more of a frozen world, to be honest. But that doesn't mean that these microbes couldn't have evolved billions of years ago and then they lay dormant and it, they just need, you know, to be brought back to Brad, life. you're playing with excitement in me right now. <laughs> there could be aliens on okay. Mars could... laying dormant. <laughs> just waiting to be woken up. So yeah, I mean, as, and there are there could be little pools of water. Uh, there are polar ice caps on Mars. Uh, maybe these microbes can hide under a rock where you know the pressure, the atmospheric pressure can be a little bit different. Or there are caves as well, caverns that that were created by volcanic activity on Mars. So that you know you could shelter them in there, and you know there's just like kind of like a local microclimate, which is a bit different to the overall climate of Mars. Okay, so that's the story, right? Could be microbes now. 
How's that useful to us here on Earth? Well, don't know about you, right? But, you know, there's lots of people that want to go to Mars. Uh-huh. Okay. Me included. You included, right? So you're front of the queue. Possibly. You're fighting everyone else. Especially if you know, now know there are loads of bacteria there. Right. Well, might be. Who knows? Um, but in about 20 years' time, NASA would want to send people to Mars. It'll be the first time people have ever landed on Mars. And funnily enough, as I said at the beginning, microbes are incredibly important for us and for everyday life. So one suggestion is, well, we could, we could bring our our own microbes to Mars but of course then you know your how are you able to distinguish between earth terrestrial microbes and Martian what was already microbes? there you don't want to infect the environment but if there was a way of distinguishing maybe some kind of genetic marker that marks our microbes as earth like they wear little name badges we are from okay <laughs> so that the Martian bacteria know that they are visitors they are guests you know so but they are really seriously considering things like that and if we bring our own methanogens and they thrive under those environments and possibly other microbes maybe genetically engineered microbes that can do a variety of things then we can then start creating our own soil because that's all thanks to microbe activity. Uh, we could uh, recycle waste. We could create oxygen using... Mi- there are microbes that produce oxygen as a result of, you know... The, so you're talking about using microbes basically to start building a habitable place, perhaps. You are absolutely right. And it doesn't stop there. Um, you can uh, g- genetically engineer microbes to produce all kinds of materials, uh, building materials, would you believe? You know, things to help you build a shelter, clothing, gardening, um, plants, and, you know, all kinds of things are a result of microbe activity. In fact, did you know that there are microbes that are used um, to mine metals? I didn't know about this. This is absolutely um, astonishing stuff. So there's all kinds of things we can do. And they're all even suggesting things like replacement organs. So if one of your organs fails when you're out there, we could maybe use microbes um, in some kind of biomedical engineering facility to grow a new kidney for you a new liver for you so that you can you know regenerate yourself this is technology beyond what i can imagine oh yeah this is well in the future now but it's fantastic that all these different scientists are coming together and thinking blue skies thinking thinking about or i should say pink skies thinking because it's mars see what i did there so they're trying to think ahead as to you know the kinds of things that come this this is unbelievable this for me this you know it sounds sci-fi but scientists are actually sitting down and going, yeah, we could use them to make a, an organ for somebody on Mars. I mean, this is, you know, they're, they're seriously thinking about these things. So there you go. So that's the future. Well, I'm not going to lie, Rad. You started off with microorganisms and you have actually glamorized it up to an extent where I'm like, um, could be a better news story, but I'm going to stick to my guns here. Yeah. Explosion in 2022. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's up to you guys, our listeners. Um, uh, tell us which story you like the best. Or if you just want to ask us any other questions about any space news stories that you've seen, we'd love to chat to you. Uh, at ROG Astronomers on Twitter, hashtag ROG Schools. Take care and we'll see you again next month. Thank you.